Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Title of my message today is Can We Be Done? Can we be done? Uh, both both uh, my boys play soccer and have for quite a while now. They just got finished with their soccer season. They've got like one more tournament left, but the actual proper season is over. And they both had an incredible season and they've been playing for a really long time. And so we've gone through like all the iterations of all the different soccer things and complications. And one of the things that you know, uh, if uh, your kids play soccer, A, the season always ends with a Graziano's pizza party. I don't know how that started, but it is a thing that you do. Um, and, and also that like soccer games mean a lot of soccer practices and a lot of smelly cleats in the car. There is nothing that smells more like death than a shin guard off a little boy who's been playing really hard for a couple hours and then just left it rotting in a bag in your car. Thanks, kids. Um, but I, I have this really vivid memory uh, from a couple years ago when uh, the uh, Zeke first started playing and you know, we, we were like, and I don't know if your kids are like this, but we're like, is he really going to stick with this? You know, because he tried some different things. And so we got him these, the, these cleats that were like hand-me-downs from someone else. And every single time we got ready to go to practice, we would have this fight with him. And uh, he would wait till the very last minute and we'd be like, get on your cleats, get on your cleats. He'd finally start putting on the cleats and then he'd be like, nah, it's not working. It's not working. We're like, well, it's not working. It's a shoe. You know how to put on shoes. He's like, no, there's something weird about these shoes. I don't know. And we're just like, oh, we got to go. Like the other kids are in the car. They're like, we're going to be late. And we're trying to hustle them out the door. And I'm just like, come on, let's go. And I would tie them real quick and just rush them. And then the whole way there, he's just like, it doesn't feel right. I don't like these shoes. We're like, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. You know, we'll deal with it. And we never did. We just kept moving on. We had stuff to do. You know what I mean? And maybe some of you are in this stage of life where you're like, it's going from one thing to the next thing from the next thing. And that's sort of what this stage of life was. But it was, it was sort of grating on me because it was like every time we took him, he would just gripe and whine about these cleats and it was so frustrating. And I remember one day he was in the car again and I had like, you know, scooped him out and like, tie, like tied him on him again. And he's just like, no, it just feels weird. He's whining. And I was just like, I'd had enough. And I was just like, can we be done? Can we be done with the cleat conversation? Okay, we've brought it up like 5.7 million times and it is driving me crazy. Can we be done with it? And I thought that was the end of it. Um, and those of you that know my kids know that was not the end of it. Immediately, a cleat flies up into the windshield. And I hear him loudly from the back seat. He's like, we can't be done with it because these cleats are horrible. No one listens to me. My whole foot's going to fall off. Because apparently some people in my family like to exaggerate things in order to make a point. I don't know where he gets it. Um, but... He, he flipped out. And so I'm like, just hold on. We'll get there. We'll deal with it. We get there. And I like, I sit down with him and I like take his sock off and it was nasty and looked at his foot and he had this like weird little blister on his foot. And I took the, the cleat and I turned it inside out and I'm like shining a flashlight in there. And there's this little piece of plastic that was like peeking up in the, in like the cleat right where the thing was. And I was like, oh. Um, and I had that moment where it was just like, call CPS. I should not be raising children. I'm the worst parent ever. 
This whole time I've just been like, deal with it, get over it. It's in your mind. It's in your imagination. And he really had this little thing that was just like, you know, running it. We got him some new cleats. It was weird. It was like a miracle. He stopped griping after that. It was so bizarre that once we actually addressed the issue, he, he stopped whining about it. And I, I bring this up because I, I think that you have been here uh, with somebody or some situation in your life before. With someone that was, you know, you're involved with and they keep bringing up the same frustration or annoyance that they're having again and again and again and again. And you're trying to be like a good friend or a good parent or a good neighbor. And, you know, the first time they're just like, this is going on. And you're just like, oh man. And you're empathizing. You're like, that's such a bummer. Oh. And then, you know, and then the next, next like five times, you're just like, oh, and you're trying to still be sympathetic and, and you're trying to support them. And, and then you start making suggestions in the seven or eight times after that. And you're like, what about this? And what if you tried that? And make, is there a way I could help you? Could I sign you up for a thing? And they keep saying it. And about the 87, seventh time, right? Finally, there's something that just sort of sweeps over you that's just like, okay, what do I have to do to not hear about this anymore? I wonder if you've hit this wall before. Don't nudge the person beside you if it's with them, because it's just, you're going to talk about that on the way home regardless, right? But you hit that wall of like, what? I will do anything. I will pay any amount of money. I will do anything. What do I have to do to not hear about this anymore because it is driving me crazy. And the truth is some of us hit this wall a little sooner than others, right? We, we sort of skip over the listening, empathy, helping them part. We're just like other people's problems are annoying. And that's because you have a condition called being a jerk. And so you need to work on that. Too quick, right? However, even the most like compassionate and caring and tender-hearted helping people among us can eventually hit this place. And then it creates weirdness, right? We start dreading being around them. Like, oh man, I gotta go. They're gonna be there and I know exactly how they're gonna be. And we start avoiding them. And, and it creates this sort of space be, between us and them because they just exhaust us. And there's actually a term for, for this thing of finding yourself in this state. It's called compassion fatigue, compassion fatigue. And it's essentially an exhausted inability to feel or act empathetically toward another person due to the quantity um, or frequency of sustained care requested or required of them, right? It's just like they're hitting you up over and over again or the thing that they need or that you feel like they need from you is so consistent that you are just drained from it. And here's the heartbreaking reality behind this thing. Being too exhausted to address someone else's needs doesn't eliminate the existence of those needs. And that creates a certain relational tension between us and other people. Because um, it's very real that you're like, I am so sick of hearing about this and it is wearing me out and I'm tired and I don't know what to do anymore. And it's also real that they're like, and I still have the same need. It still hasn't been remedied. It's still something that needs to be addressed. It's still dragging on. That's why I keep bringing it up. And sometimes that, that, that complicated space in between creates problems for us. 
And a lot of us, we don't know what to do with this. And it happens with a lot of people who are, you know, in situations where they're in close proximity with people dealing with chronic issues in their life, whether that is like elongated bouts of sickness or physical disabilities or mental health issues like deep into depression or steady situational or societal obstacles like discrimination or poverty or unemployment. These things continue to drag on and it can feel exhausting to provide support or to even be asked for that support. And often our exhaustion over time pushes us to this place of, can we just be done with this? Like, can we just be done? Can we move on? Can, can, you, can you snap out of it? Can, can you get over it already? Like at the very least, can we stop talking about it all the time? And some people do stop talking about it, whatever the thing is. But the issue still remains because being silent about something isn't the same as solving it. Like just because you stop talking about it or ignore it doesn't mean it doesn't still exist. And what I've found is that people continue to complain about issues that they see as still unresolved. Like, this may sort of blow your mind, but sometimes when we're the one feeling annoyed by something, we're just like, they're doing this to annoy me, right? Where they like, they've been plotting of like, how could I ruin her life, right? But in reality, um, people often bring up things over and over again because they are still in the middle of it. At least in their mind, in their experience, it's still something that, that has no resolution. And so they're still bringing it up to try and figure out what to do in the midst of it. And no matter how much we wish that this wasn't true, no matter how much it's inconvenient for other people, it's something that still exists. And we get that, like, you know, that, that uh, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense for us to tell someone to, like, snap out of it when it's an issue from, like, the neck down, right? But from the neck up, we think about things very differently. I mean, think about how absurd this sounds. Like, imagine somebody in your family and you just went to them and you're like, you know what? I just got to be honest with you. It's finally time to have this confrontation. Your diabetes is so annoying. It is so, like, we're having to adjust everything. The cooking schedule is different. You know how much insulin costs and you're doing it every day and I got to, and I can't do this and I got to check my blood. It's so frustrating. And we took a vote in the family and you know what? Snap out of it. Okay. We all voted you need to be done with the diabetes, okay? Because it is driving us crazy. Doesn't make any sense. You know what's really annoying? You know what's really been inconvenient for us? When you stopped using your legs due to that horrific accident that paralyzed you from the waist down, it, it has rearranged our entire lives. We're having to do so many different things. So many things take longer. We've had to add on to the house and this and that. And we just, we get it. And so we just decided, can you snap out of it? Can you just start walking again and using your legs? Because that would really help. Like Now, as I'm saying this, there's part of you that is just like, you feel so sick and uncomfortable. Your buttocks are clenching. You're just like, that is inappropriate. You can't say that. That's absurd. It's insensitive. And it is. But a lot of times we say the same sort of stuff to people who are suffering from some form of mental illness that we would never say to someone who is suffering from another form of like physical illness. We don't see the absurdity in it. And let me tell you something that you probably don't want to hear. Many long-term biologically-based conditions can't be cured, they must be managed. And that's annoying 
because we'd rather just eliminate something immediately than have to deal with it daily. But just because you'd prefer something doesn't make it a possibility. And this is definitely the case with severe depression. And a big reason is because, you know, depression has a lot to do with your biological makeup. And yours is not the same as everyone else's. No matter how much you'd like to, you can't just sort of sit down one day and make a decision to just magically snap your fingers and have a different brain and body. Instead, you're going to have to learn about and work with and care for the one you've got. And that is a long-term project, which frustrates people in a culture who are obsessed with overnight miracle cures. And this provides a dilemma for us. Now, the depression, just to give you like a, a bigger picture of sort of how this thing works the best I can, depression is the result of a deficit in, in a combination of, of three basic categories, okay? And we have made this like really clever triangular thing to sort of like illustrate this for you. But it's essentially a, a combination of a deficit in the areas of like nature, nurture, neighborhood. Now let me describe the, like what I mean by these sorts of things. So nature, right? Your, your biology and your brain chemistry has a huge impact on your disposition and the way that you approach life. Um, like the, the way, the imprint uh, on your genetics, right? Like the, the family history and what has happened in them gets passed down and imprinted on you. It's sort of your default personality. All of these things that are sort of bundled and come prepackaged. And yet some of these things actually are movable within a range. And yet you did inherit a certain set of, of tendencies. And those things are affected and impacted by nurture, right? By our habits and our history, by the way we grew up, by the things that happened to us when we were younger, by the different experiences we've had, how those things have turned on or off the different things that are active in our biology, right? And like the different habits, the things that we do, uh, the, the way that we approach our life, the way that we think, all of these different things impact and affect um, our biology. And then there's the area of neighborhood, not necessarily the physical neighborhood. You, like, there's not like a zip code that's like, sorry, you moved into the wrong place. Everyone there is going to be depressed. Uh, what I mean by that is like people in proximity. So really people and, and, and places. So the people that are in our orbit, like they impact us. They rub off on us. The environments we find ourselves in, those things affect and impact us. Those things shape and reshape and affect um, our biology and our brain chemistry. And all of these sorts of things work together to create the way that we experience the world. And that means that if we are going to actually um, like move forward to get better, to experience some form of relief or recovery, um, we have to address all of these things in our lives. And I want to peel them apart a little bit more, but I want to just sort of pause and, and, and show you from this story in the Old Testament about this, this prophet who sort of suddenly drops into this deep depression because it happens to spiritual people too. Um, the surprising ways in which God sort of points him in a direction to help him begin to tunnel out. And it's found in the book of, of 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, and so if you have a Bible, you can, you can flip there or we're gonna put on the screen as well. And I wanna give you some background first. It's a story about this guy named Elijah. 
and he's a prophet. So uh, it's a fancy way of saying like he, he spoke on behalf of God. And so God would speak to him and give his messages for the people. And uh, the story sort of begins with him predicting that there's gonna be a drought and then it actually happens. And this is what, you know, ensures that you're a prophet, not just a crazy person, right? Because it actually has to come true, the thing that you say and predict. And so it does. And of course, it throws the people into panic and there's a lot of suffering as a result of this thing. And so um, Elijah reinserts himself back into the picture at God's command. And he's like, let's do this contest to see whose God, like, you know, your God or my God is powerful enough to actually pull us out of this drought again. So he holds this contest and both you know, groups of people, they call fire from heaven. And the first thing, it doesn't happen. And, and Elijah's classy. So he's like, maybe your God's in the bathroom. It's a great story. He's mocking them. And then he prays. It's like a one sentence prayer. A fireball falls out of heaven, burns up the altar, the bull on the altar, all this stuff. And then everyone's like, whoa, you're, you have the one true God. And then he picks up the sword and he like kills all the prophets of the false God. It's like this horrible, like crazy 300 Rambo sort of scene. And then after that, after all that happens, he's just like, victory. He's on top of the world. And then he gets this message that the evil queen Jezebel uh, wants him dead. And immediately he panics and he runs away and becomes suicidal. And this is where we pick this really fun story up. First Kings chapter 19, verse three, it says this. Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. And then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life for I'm no better than my ancestors who already died. He just, want, he just wants to be done. He wants to be done with his life. Um, he's bottoming out. And it sounds a lot like depression. And, and what I think is interesting is that it's, like a lot of uh, depressive episodes, even ones that last a really long time, it's, it's triggered by this certain set of circumstances, but it's disproportionate to the circumstances because he already had everything um, needed to be a deepened depressive and everything begins to tip him in that direction and he falls into it hard and he just wants to die. And the big question here is like, how is God going to respond to this? Like, what is God going to do or say in this situation? He's going to tell him like, well, you should pray harder. Shed more faith. Maybe memorize a few more Bible verses. Maybe, maybe try telling the devil, no, not today. Okay, maybe try that one. What is God going to tell him to do? And what actually happens is really interesting. Verse five says this. Elijah laid down and, and slept under a tree. And then an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. And that's the spiritual advice. Doesn't sound super spiritual, does it? Um, And I think this is partially because we need to expand our definition of what is spiritual. An angel, imagine this for just a minute. How many of you have like seen an angel in person in the flesh? Probably not many of us. And how many of you, like, you're like, an angel, what message do you have for me? And he's like, you should really eat something. That's the message. God sent an angel to tell him you should eat something. Like the angel is suggesting that Elijah address his emotional problem by caring for his physical body. Interesting. Why would he tell him that? 
because some mental and emotional breakthroughs require you to first address physical issues because you're an integrated being. And I wonder if this has ever been a dialogue between you and God. Maybe he didn't go through an angel. Maybe he just gave you a sense of something, right? Where you were like, God, you gotta help me. You gotta help me do this thing. You gotta intervene. You gotta work a miracle in my life. And, and he was like, I will. And then he responded by telling you to do something that felt really basic and you were offended. You were like, God, you gotta help me with my constant exhaustion. God, you gotta help me. And God is like, I will. Why don't you start by setting your phone down and going to bed earlier. And we're like, hmm, I don't really wanna, it's looking for more like a miracle sort of a thing. I don't wanna do that. God, you gotta help me with my anger issues. And God's like, I know I do, and I will. And so let's just start by maybe lowering your sugar intake and eating some protein in the afternoon. We're like, oh, I don't really wanna do that. God, you gotta help me with my anxiety. I will, I will. And what I want you to do is I want you to start by actually moving out and not living in a house with somebody who is verbally and physically abusive because that's gonna keep your anxiety on edge. God, like, I, I, like I, I need you to give me the will to live. And God's like, I will, I want that for you. Start by seeing a doctor and finding out what's going on with you. And maybe if there is something that you need to take to level your brain chemistry. And we're like, oh, I don't want to do that. Make an appointment, and then you got to go there and talk to the person, and like, it'd be so convenient if you just worked the miracle. Isn't it weird, like, how God always involves us in our own transformation? Wouldn't it have been just as easy for God to send an angel, and the angel's like, wake up while you were sleeping. I miraculously surgically filled your belly with everything you'll need for the journey ahead. He doesn't do that. He gives him some instruction to take care of his own body. And and here's why this happens in this story, in a lot of Bible stories, honestly, is that the different dimensions of life aren't isolated, they're integrated. In other words, like when it comes to this subject that we're talking about, because depression is a whole person affliction, recovery requires a whole person approach. We like to sort of segment off things and just be like, this part of my being has nothing to do with this part of my being. But we can't do that. That's a Western concept that just isn't real. Like all of these things are integrated and make up who we are. And once you wrap your head around this reality, you realize how brilliant the angel's instructions are in Elijah's story. That he's just like, listen, I know that you're wanting to address this. In order to deal with that, you're going to have to to deal with this. You're gonna have to start here in order to get to here. He goes on to say in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse six, that Elijah the angel wakes him up. He looks around and there beside his head was some fresh baked bread on hot stones and a jar of water, which is, I mean, it's bedside service. I mean, it's catering at its finest. What does bread taste like that was cooked by an angel? I don't know. Or maybe I do, Gretchen. (laughs) She's not even in here. Come on. Somebody get her. We'll do it again. No, I'm just kidding. Then it says that he ate and he drank and he laid back down and went to sleep again. Man, this is some deep in depression. Have you ever like just woken up and you're like, oh, I should do something. I'm hungry. And you just like sort of grab a handful of Doritos off the nightstand 
and wash it down with a liquid. You're not even sure what it is. You know what I mean? It was just there from two nights ago. And then you're like, that's enough for today. And then you just go back to, that's still what this guy's doing. That's a, that's, you're in a rough place. Verse seven, it says, the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. Now, this happens over and over and over again. It's like this repetitious cycle. And I don't think that it calls our attention to that on accident. I, I think that the repetition is important because he doesn't just get one good night of sleep. He gets multiple. He doesn't just eat one healthy meal to fuel his body. He has multiple. There is a rejuvenation rhythm that's being established here that really hasn't existed in his life for a little while. Because if you re rewind his story and go into the scenes that happened right before this moment, like he's just sort of, he's so fixated on a goal that he has that he's just sort of like trashing his body. He's letting his anxiety get the best of him. He's ramping up to these crazy situations and he's not paying attention to how, like the toll that it's taking on him. It says in uh, the very next verse, verse number eight, so he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. So like he goes on this really long hike to this out of the way place where he can just sort of be with God, where he can connect with God in this moment. And it takes him 40 days and 40 nights to get there. Some of us were like, God, that is way too long. I got to work again on Monday. So now think about, think about our categories, like nature, nurture, neighborhood, as it relates to what God tells Elijah to do to fight his depression. He's like, hey, sleep, <laughs> eat, drink, hike, Right? These are things that are addressing like his, his nature, his biology. Because you're going to need your brain functioning correctly. And these are the things that physically will do that in order to actually move forward and, and have what you need chemically to move forward. Then he pulls him out of his normal routine, which is not working for him. And he establishes this new sort of rhythm of healthy habits that he has him repeat over and over and over again. And some of you are like, I could build new habits if I had like a angelic life coach. I mean, that's not even fair. And I'll give you that. It takes 40 days, not overnight, like a long period of time to dive into this stuff. And then God tells him in the very next section of scripture that, listen, to move forward in your life, you're going to have to partner with someone else. And he tells him to go recruit this kid, Elisha, so that he can face what life is gonna throw at him in front of him. In other words, he's like, you need to address your neighborhood. You went away from the crazy chaos and now you need to put some people around you to help you manage the chaos within you. One thing I love about this story is that God never demeans Elijah for being in a dark place and he never rushes him to get out of it. And maybe for some of you, that sort of blows your mind because you're like, that's not the impression I had at all of what God wanted for me. But the reality is the pressure to snap out of it that we feel, it doesn't come from God, but from the personalities and the societal pace that surrounds us. See, the reality is God is way more patient than people. And if we're feeling the pressure of like, I got to snap out of this now, like just let, let off the steam of feeling like that maybe God is doing that to you. 
God is interested in walking it out with you, and this is a process. And the work you may need to do just to be able to function may be different and more than what somebody else has to do. And I get that that doesn't feel fair, and it, it's not. But what's normal for other people is not your benchmark. I love this, this, this set of instructions that one of the, the early followers of Christ gives to the early church about sort of how to navigate their lives and the conflict and the emotional and mental toil that they're experiencing. He says this in, in Galatians chapter 6, um, verses 4 and 5. I'll read this in the message. It says, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself to others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Interesting, right? Explore who you are. Not who somebody else is. Not what somebody else is doing. Identify the work that you need to do on yourself, on your life, on your circumstances, on your health. And sure, other people may not have that issue. Other people may not have to take those meds. Other people may not have to address, address those traumas in their life. Other people may not have to work as hard on those particular patterns, but they're not you. And trust me, they are doing their own work. They got their own stuff to wrestle to the ground. And you're not responsible for them. You're responsible for you. So do the creative best you can with your life. Like, you know, when I tell my kids, like, to do the creative best they can, like, it's oftentimes when we're playing Legos and they can't find the piece they want, like, I don't have all the right pieces. And I'm just like, do the creative best you can. You ever looked at your own life and just thought, like, I see what they're doing and accomplishing. I'm not sure I'm working with all of the same pieces. And your father is saying the same thing to you. You're not. Do the creative best you can with your life. It's not a race between you and them. And so what work do we need to do? That's the question, right? And I would pose it to you, regardless of where you are in this, on this spectrum, like which aspect of your mental or emotional health might you need to explore and address? And this could be different for all of us, depending on where we're at and how rough it is and how dark of a place we find ourselves in. Um, what does this actually look like? If we go back to this like, um, you know, triangular thing here, some things that may affect and impact the nurture, the, the biology and brain chemistry part of it. Some of us like are at a place where we need to go, uh, we need to go see a doctor. We need to see what medication we might need to take to balance some deficiencies in our brain chemistry. Um, we may need to adjust our nutrition we may need to eat differently because uh, we are not giving our body what it needs to actually function correctly. We may need to exercise because we're cooped up and we're not utilizing our body and releasing the natural uh, chemistry that it needs by actually moving yourself. We're not getting sunshine. We're not getting enough sleep. And so we actually need to put some attention into the type of sleep we're getting and our sleep routine so that we're actually fueling our body the way we need to. Some of us, we need to address things in the nurture category. Like we've got some trauma that from our past that is influencing how we make every decision in the present and we're not even aware of it or we don't want to deal with it or we've never addressed it or processed through it. 
Some of us have uh, certain triggers that when certain things happen, we bottom out. And other people in our life are starting to become aware of what those things are. And we haven't done enough self-work to know what they are or how to handle them, how to mitigate those moments in our own lives. For some of us, it's an issue of values. Like we've set our sights on achieving things that are not gonna bring us happiness. And we run so hard after certain things and it just makes us bummed because it can't deliver the kind of fulfillment that we're searching for. For some of us, it's certain patterns or habits, ways of doing things. For some of us, it's our self-talk. It's these looping thoughts that we've never isolated and addressed and worked at sort of uprooting. For some of us, it's neighborhood work, right? It's the people, places, the things. It's like we need to address all the nouns in our lives, right? It's like, man, these people over here, like when I spend time with them, they drag me down. They, they actually push me over the edge. Like they, 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 they like trigger so many things for me. They, they push me into sort of spiraling self-talk patterns, right? Uh, there are other people that are uplifting and we need to be around them more. There are certain places that we should go and other places that are just like, man, we shouldn't go. They're not good for us. And it's, it's a lot. And as you, as you stare at this list, there, there, there is this sense of like overwhelmingness because this is addressing your whole person. But I hope when you look at this, there is this sense of like, oh, that's why you can't just snap out of it. Because there's a whole lot more going on here than just one simple decision. And sometimes we're stuck because we don't really wanna address anything. Sometimes we're stuck because we are addressing the wrong things. Sometimes it's that we're not addressing enough things. Sometimes it's that we're addressing the right things and enough of them, but we didn't do it for long enough for it to actually make a difference. My kids are always like, I ate one salad, Dad. I don't feel better. I was like, you know what? I think it takes more than that. So how many push pops did you eat? Oh, they're outside again. Okay. Again, this is a process and it takes time. It's not instantaneous. And it's not the same process for everyone. People wrestling with depression are having different experiences on different levels for different reasons. But here's what you can do. In the, the famed words of the great theologian, Dr. Leo Marvin from What About Bob? Baby steps, okay? Baby steps. And here's what I mean by that. You are not gonna be able to snap out of it, but you can take a small step forward. And so what is that for you? You can take one small step um, followed by another and another and another, but you don't need to think about all the steps right now, just taking the first one. And the reality of it is, it is going to be a journey and it may take the whole of your life to complete it. You may never rid yourself completely of depression, but you can be better than you are now. Like the honest truth is that you may never be able to fully defeat depression, but you can keep it from fully defeating you. And I waited till the third week to let you know that the whole series is false advertising because we just want to like quickly find out some tactics to be done with something forever. But real deep in depression isn't something that is instantaneously cured. It is something that is ongoingly managed, one day at a time, one step at a time, at nobody's pace but your own. And and I'll be real with you guys. If we go back to this triangle and you look at all the stuff that is listed here, I do all these things. 
I've had issues with depression since I was 21 years old. I'm gonna dive more into my story next week, but like I take medication, I work on my nutrition, I exercise every single week, I try and get out and get sunshine, I sleep with a sleep contraption because I have a sleep disorder. I have to process my trauma in therapy. I got to go over my triggers. Gretchen and I always have to talk about our values. I have to constantly look at like the patterns that I slowly drift back into old things that don't work for me. Self-talk is a big thing. If you go in my office, I have like little sticky notes and things written on the wall to remind me of like not automatic ways of thinking. I have to size up the people and the places and the things that I put around me and hold close. And there are times where I have to readjust those boundaries. And even though I do all these things, I still have bad days. I still have bad weeks. I still have bad months. I manage it. Here's the thing. I am better than I have been. And there is hope. I gotta tell you, if you find yourself frustrated with the people around you, annoyed or angry that they're, you know, it's, they're struggling harder than you and it's taking longer than you want them to. I want to just read you something else, a charge that, that Paul gives the people of God right after he tells them that they need to work on their own lives at their own pace. He goes on to say this, Galatians chapter six, verse nine. He says, let us not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. Interesting that like the translator selected that word. At the right time, we'll harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get a chance, let's work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in our community of faith. And what he's saying is that like, although you're gonna have to do your own work that nobody can do for you, we are made to lean in and help and support one another, what God wants to do in you and through you, you cannot do on your own. And some of us are going to have to slow our pace and, and, and sort of adjust our expectations so that we have the time and the margin to lean in and actively care about the people around us who God put us in proximity to in order to help lift them up and put them on the path to healing. I want you to know that like, if you're in a place where like Elijah, it just feels like the lights are going out. And like him, he keeps repeating these phrases over and over again, essentially saying like, everything is hopeless and I'm all alone and I'm gonna die. And it's not until he begins to sort of start addressing some of these biological issues that he, he gets enough clarity that God is able to, to speak the truth into his life and tell him like, it's not hopeless. There actually are solutions. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they don't exist or are being activated right now. You're not alone. He tells him that there's actually 7,000 people waiting for him back where he came from to partner with him to move forward. And God reminds him like you, your brain edited out all the support you actually have because you are so in the dark. I just want to tell you that if you are in that place, that there are a lot of people in your spiritual community that love you, care about you, that want to support and help you 
even though your brain may be editing that out in this moment. Take the first baby step and get help. Would you bow your heads across this room? I just wanna pray into your life today that God would help you to do this in your world. God, thank you so much for the life that you've given us, for the hope and love and care that you've given us for your word, which gives us insight into who we're made to be and to how to live life to the full. God, so many of us, we feel so dragged down by so many things in our lives and we, we need your help. We, we feel like things are hopeless. We feel like we are all alone and we feel the pressure to sort of snap out of it. God, I pray that you would communicate to us that that pressure is not coming from you. And in fact, that you wanna take us on a journey of holistically addressing everything that is dragging us down and holding us back. And then although it may not be something that you completely lift off our shoulders in this lifetime, that we can and will get better. And God, I pray that you would give us enough sense of hope to just take the next step followed by the next and the next and the next. And God, I pray that those of us who are in a season of feeling energized and feeling hopeful, God, I pray that we would be those who gather around and support and champion those who are not. That we'd be your community of people leading each other toward hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.